There are some weeks when the choral anthem lines up just perfectly with the scripture reading, and this is one of those. So thank you, choir. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Emma and Amanda and I were deciding what to preach this summer, I recalled listening to one of Brene Brown's podcasts, Unlocking Us. And she's known at the end of several of her podcasts to offer this series of rapid-fire questions to help you get to know the person she's interviewed better. What's on your nightstand, she'll ask. Three words that describe you, go. But my favorite is when she asks them to build a mini mixtape. You know those tapes that we used to make long ago? And she would say, what are five songs that you can't live without? And then she'd ask, what do those five songs say about you? So this summer, we're building ourselves a scripture mixtape. Scriptures you and we can't live without. And as we unpack each passage, we'll ask ourselves together, what do these scriptures say about us? And what do they say about our relationship with God and who we understand God to be? And this week, we start with Sandy's selection and one of the best, Romans 12. On the Partner with the Preacher uh, Bible study on Monday morning, Sandy called it the playbook for Christian living. The Apostle Paul lays out for us how to live as a follower of Jesus with each other, and with the world around us. And it is, as you are listening, this beautiful outline of what a sanctified life looks like. So beautiful that it's often a favorite selection at weddings, my own included. It's a passage that can help a couple reflect on how they want to be together in the world. But if you are listening carefully, it's also a tall order. We can all get behind, let love be genuine, hold fast to what is good. I'm all about rejoicing in hope. But there are some challenging parts of this passage. Bless those who persecute you? Really? Be patient in suffering? That's easier said than done. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Does Paul really expect that of us? Does God? As I read through this text multiple times this past week, I think it's easy to think, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel. Paul calls us to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, he says. And as I read this text, I am certain that I am never going to do all of these things perfectly. But with a little further reflection, and before we let ourselves get overwhelmed, we should go back to where this chapter begins with verse 1, because the opening verse of chapter 12 gives us insight into what we're supposed to do with this call to an obedient life. So listen to those first two verses again. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living offering, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, says Paul. Now, we have all sat through a college lecture or an excessively long and irksome sermon and started to zone out. Admit it, you've done it before. And then you, the speaker finally says, therefore, and your alarm bells go off, right? Your ears perk up. This is it. You think this preacher Paul is finally going to land the plane. We've gotten to the point. That one word, therefore, serves as a hinge. Everything that comes after it, this whole playbook for Christian living, we can only receive because of what has come before it. And Paul has spent 11 chapters, an excessively long and irksome sermon, outlining God's relationship to us. He begins Romans by describing God's merciful redemption of the fallen world through the death of Jesus Christ, who, like Abraham before him, has trusted in God's righteousness. Paul has shown us then in the next three chapters how both Christ and Adam point us to the bondage we experience in sin and death, And he's just finished sharing in the preceding three chapters the good news of the gospel. Because of Christ's resurrection, there is nothing, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And he ends chapter 11 by offering this final punctuation from Christ, through Christ, in Christ are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, we have been given this gift of grace upon grace. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to change it. It is a gift And a gift that sets us free from the sin and evil of this world, it is the best gift you will ever receive, and that could have been the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. He said amen, after all. But then we get chapter 12. Therefore. Therefore, says Paul, I appeal to you. Other translations say, I urge you, I beseech you, I beg you, I invite you, I call you to live like this. This whole chapter that we heard read is about how we get to respond to this grace, this gift from God. It's an appeal to take what you have been given and to live as if that gift were real and true and for you. It's an invitation to be transformed so that you become like a mirror that reflects Christ's love and grace to others in the world. 
Paul's trying to say that if you take seriously this gift, your response will be a life of joyful obedience. Not because you have to, but because you want to. When you trust that this promise is true, your life will look different. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it costly grace. Cheap grace, he said, is preaching forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. But costly grace, he says, is like a treasure hidden in a field. And for the sake of it, you would go and sell everything that you have. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs us our life. But it's grace because it gives us the only true life. This gift of God, gift from God, costs you something and requires something of you. It invites us into a life of obedience in which we will let love be genuine. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. This gift calls us to a way of living in the world that reflects the grace that you have been given back to everyone else that you encounter because of the way you choose to live and love. You know, what I find most interesting about Paul's therefore is that he doesn't say in chapter 12, because of God's gift of grace in Jesus, believe these particular things, or recite this creed, or memorize this scripture, or follow this dogma. Instead, Paul says, therefore, live this way. We sometimes get caught up in the weeds of Paul's theological arguments with what right belief looks like, according to Paul. But Paul says here that the best way to share God's grace and mercy is not in your belief, but in your behavior. He's concerned about your orthopraxy, not your orthodoxy. Not what you think, but what you do. Therefore, live this way. Do these things. Be transformed by this grace so that your life reflects Christ's love. It doesn't change the fact that the obedient life Paul calls us to is challenging. Grace taken seriously costs us something. But Paul offers us this invitation to obedience because he knows how his own life has been transformed by a grace he did not deserve. Before coming to know Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul was captive to sin in a way that led him to hate and persecute others, especially Christians. And then he personally lived the story of God's grace. He heard Christ's voice on that road calling him to a new life, but it wasn't until Ananias restored Paul's sight at great risk to Ananias' own life, that that grace became real for him. Ananias lived first for Paul the call of Romans 12 that he invites us to. 
It's in these small but monumental human-to-human moments that Paul was transformed, that we are transformed and able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This week, many of us are grieving the end of the TV show, Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso launched during the pandemic when the world needed hope and humor. And many of us in this room fell in love with this character named Ted. If you haven't watched the show, Ted is a football coach from Kansas who gets hired to coach English football, soccer. And upon Ted's arrival in England, the team learns that he doesn't know a single thing about soccer. He doesn't know the names of the positions. He doesn't know what it means to be offsides. He has no idea what it means to win. He's never even watched soccer, let alone played it. But Ted took Paul's therefore seriously. The coaching job he had been given was a gift of grace for him in a time in his life when he needed a fresh start and a way forward. Therefore, he lived the call of Romans 12. And he coached not from a soccer playbook, but from the playbook for Christian living. He won over the team owner that hated him by bringing her little pink boxes of shortbread cookies every day. He found his ways into the hearts of the team players with funny jokes and playful rituals. He wore down their hardened hearts with love. He reflected the grace of God, and because of that, not only was he transformed, but so were every one of his players and the whole AFC Richmond team and every fan I know of the show. Most of us won't have a Damascus Road bright shining light moment of transformation like Paul. Most of us aren't quick enough or funny enough to be Ted Lasso, but all of us have had those kinds of human-to-human encounters where Christ's grace has been reflected back to us in a way that we are changed. My friend Anna, who happens to be a pastor, recalls the day she was in the Caribou Coffee drive through line, and her daughter Margaret, who was all of 16 months old, was strapped into the back seat and was having a total meltdown. And as parents do, Anna reached back to try and console her screaming toddler. And as she did, she lifted her foot just a little bit off the brake and tapped the car in front of her in line. And she was mortified and embarrassed and at her breaking point with this child in the back seat. But she did the things you do, right? She got out of the car and she apologized profusely. And they all looked at the bumpers and determined there was no damage. And the woman who hit her was lovely and gracious. And so they got back into their cars and she, you know, recalibrated and set herself back up and pulled up to the window to finally pick up her coffee and her breakfast. And when she did, she learned that the person who she had hit had paid for her breakfast and told the person in the window to tell her, don't worry about it. She'd had this encounter with grace and been transformed. 
And the person who offered that grace to her had already driven off. There was no way for her to repay that gift except to respond by giving and loving and shining that light for others. The truth is that most of us live into Paul's therefore, not in these big dramatic ways, but through lots of small actions, moments where you do love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, bless those who persecute you, live in harmony with others, and so on and so on as Paul offers. And we will probably not get it right every time. But all of those acts of obedience add up to a life of faithful discipleship. It's costly in that it's cumulative in the same way God intends for our discipline to be. And it adds up moment by moment, person by person, grace reflected again and again. Therefore, says Paul, we are called to present ourselves as a living offering. Therefore, we are called to live by the playbook of Christian living. It is no mistake that what follows the sermon in our worship is the offering. It's the therefore of our worship. Because of the grace we have heard and heard sung and heard proclaimed, we are invited to respond. And we pass the plates in worship, not just because we need to pay the light bill, but because when we pool our resources, it's a way of reflecting our love out to the world together. But whether you put anything in the plate or not, your invitation during the time of offering is to prayerfully consider how you will follow the playbook this week, moment by moment, person by person, grace reflected again and again. Therefore, let us give to God our tithes and offerings. Amen.